Welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Helicast. This episode of the Real Rescue is being sponsored by Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Coming up in this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by a couple Army pilots who tell us some of their stories from while they were in the service. They're currently out running a whole nother program, another podcast, and a whole bunch more. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Spencer Payne and Nick Yates from Brotalian. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today I've got a couple guys, not just any guys, a couple army boys. Who? Is it who or who raw? We, we don't do we'll, we'll try to avoid both. I personally refrain uh, from using that word, yes. <laughs> Roger that. Huh? Oh, sorry, sorry, it slipped out. Slipped out. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I got Spencer Payne and Nick Yates coming to us. Uh, they are pilots, former pilots from the Army and running Brotalian. What's up, fellas? How's it going? What's up, brother? Happy Good. to be here. Dude, I'm psyched to have you guys here. It's it's funny we talked about this a little bit ago, but this has been like in the works for almost a year now. It's crazy. <laughs> Between your schedule, my schedule, HAI, this, that, and the other thing, just it's it's gone to now. So yep. whatever. But here we are. Nice. Here we are. Here we are. So what's cool about this is that um, as most people might know, the US Army has a much different mission type than the US Coast Guard. So when you and I first got talking, um, about some of this stuff i asked you guys like oh do you guys have any rescue stories that would stand out and both you guys were like yeah we get a little something i was like oh oh all right uh this is gonna be good so this is the reason we're here but before i get into that nick if you don't mind take us through a little bit how did you come into the army and what brought you to be a pilot sure so um you know, it's funny, you know, you, we kind of, we've kind of plugged up. We both run podcasts and it's kind of the tale as old as time. We hear it a hundred times. I, I grew up around aviation. Uh, my dad was a private pilot. I was around airplanes and, and aviation as long as I can physically remember. I mean, there, there are pictures of me at three years old sitting on the wheel of his uh, little Cessna 152 that he had at the time. And, and growing up around that, you know, it was something I always wanted to do. And I, I did things like civil air patrol and stuff growing up to try to become more involved and knowledgeable about aviation, which is a great program, a little plug for them. If anybody has kids that, you know, they want to involve in some wholesome activities outside of just sports, but, you know, going into high school, I wasn't really the best student and going into college, I ended up being a really good student and uh, making the right connections. And I was in ROTC, uh, but I knew that 
I wasn't quite as good of a student to be competitive for a slot in aviation. You know, they're on the ROTC side, they're super coveted. Maybe one, maybe the top one or two people in the class will get it if it's their preference. And, and I knew that I wasn't there. I was self-aware enough. I mean, I was a good student, but I wasn't the best, you know, I didn't have a 4.0 or anything like that. And so the more that kind of became a realization, um, the more that I knew, okay, what are my options? And I didn't really know uh, what a warrant officer was. I mean, I did ROTC, but you don't, really, you don't truly know what a warrant officer is. And as a Lieutenant, probably most of them don't know what they are until they get to flight school. And it's a rude awakening for a lot of people. And I don't say that in a, in a negative or degrading way towards, you know, O grades at whatever. They're just not, they're not really informed. Uh, but I had a mentor of mine who I had met through sports. That was the, uh, he was the former command chief warrant officer five at one sixtieth um, at the time. And he was like, you know, why don't you consider becoming a warrant officer? And I was like, well, I don't know what that is. And he's like, look into, you know, warrant officer flight training, the street to seat program, high school to flight school. It has a hundred different names that people refer to it as. And so I started that process uh, my sophomore year of high or of, uh, of college. I was at Western Kentucky university studying nothing related to aviation and, um, the process from awesome. start. Yeah. It's the, I was, start, I was studying nutrition and dietetics. It was just something that I was interested in personally and, and had a passion for. And, um, you know, through that, through meeting him and starting that process, um, you know, I, I had a little bit of a support system. You know, the biggest thing, uh, that I can emphasize to people looking to go that route is, don't just blindly go to a recruiter. Definitely make sure you have somebody in or that is a little bit knowing of the process to, to help you because a lot of the recruiters don't know the ins and outs or maybe don't have the connections to, to get you on base or the flight physical location and all that kind of stuff. So that process took uh, from start to finish uh, probably a, just under it. Yeah, under a year, about nine months from the time I started with my recruiter until nice. the time that I actually received my acceptance, which is significantly faster than most. A lot of people, a lot of people are in the process anywhere from one to two years, depending on the timing wow. and, and what they're doing and their recruiter. A lot of it is dependent on the recruiter, but I was pretty motivated. Uh, part of it too, for me personally, was that, you know, I looked at the the timelines and I was like, okay, well, if I start now, have my packet in by this board date the results will come out in between the summer of my sophomore and junior, you know, year of college. And I'll know, you know, whether or not that way I'm not halfway through a school year, then get accepted, have to draw, you know, all of that, all of those things were in my head. And uh, yeah, May, I started the process in like October. It was like September, October. And I uh, got my acceptance uh, in May the following year. Um, and I had actually, I, we had my packet in before that, but uh, this was, you know, 20, 2012, 2013, when the sequester was happening. And so at that time, the board, uh, the boards for warrant officer accessions were actually, you know, shutting down due to government sequesters and they were combining boards, which was cool, but it also made it more competitive. Um, yeah, I got, I got my acceptance in May and I swore in, in July and, uh, shipped out, went through, you know, basic training, uh, cause every, Nice. Every warrant officer candidate uh, and uh, and OCS and officer candidate, if they're going the OCS route, that you all go through basic training. Uh, you're just a zero nine whiskey or a zero nine X ray, depending on whether you're an OCS candidate or a walks candidate. Uh, assume presumably it's still the same now as what it was then. 
And then, yeah, you do that. Then you go to uh, Fort Rucker, knock out walks, and you're on your way to flight school. But uh, Wait a minute, what, what the heck is walks? Warrant officer candidate school. So, oh, good. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be careful with some of this army lingo. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So, OCS, obviously, every branch has OCS on the officer candidate side. And we just added a W to it. And to be honest, it is the, it's not quite what people think it is um, because the course design was really for people who are prior service. Right. And so, a lot of it is more along the lines of professional development, the history of the warrant officer corps and all this stuff, very core oriented, not necessarily like, Oh, combat skills. We're going to teach you how to be a warrior. (laughs) That's not really what it is. You do some field stuff and you, you know, you do things here and there, but most of, most of warrant officer camp school is just a professional leadership school. Uh, You know, they want to teach you where, you know, where the warrant officer corps has been, where, well, not really where it's going because I don't think anybody really knows that. Um, But but, you know, it's really focused on that and focused on, you know, developing people's attention to detail and building a team. Um, but yeah, nice. so knocked that out. And uh, then you go to Bullock, which Bullock's changed a hundred times. It's basic officer leadership course, um, kind of dives in. It's mostly academic, dives into, there's a little bit of land navigation and ranges and, you know, the typical army stuff. But for the most part, for the most part, it's academic. And that's where you, I would say, really start to learn a little bit more about the structure of the army, how things sort of work. Again, it's still a schoolhouse, so you don't really know. It's just kind of, it's information overload. And then that way, you know, just enough to where you don't completely sound like an idiot when you show up to your first unit, especially if you're a street to seat guy or, you know, coming in from, from OCS. But yeah, but once you do those academic courses and professional development courses, you're on your route. Uh, to start flying and, and going through the flight school process. But for me, I feel like my story is pretty similar to a lot of people who came into aviation. It's just, I went the warrant officer route off the bat instead of, you know, to a Academy or OCS or one of those. Nice man. Ah, oh, what a, what a great way to get into it. That's sick. I like that. Yeah. Quick too. Well done. Yeah, it was, it was a fast pro. It was a little bit overwhelming to be honest. Um, I didn't think it was going to go that fast. I had heard horror stories. I mean, at the time, Instagram wasn't really, not very many people were on Instagram. You didn't have all of this stuff. And so at the time, everybody was on uh, ver- the vertical reference forums. And that's where you would go for all of your information about how to get into the warrant officer flight training program. And, and there were these people who are just, you know, the legends on there that would kind of give a little bit of the details of, Oh, this is, you know, this is the gouge of what you need to know and all that. And, you know, 19 year old me sitting there just pounding away at my keyboard with questions, hoping that some willing soul is going to help me out. And I, at the end of the day, you know, I, at the end of the day, the selection rate was pretty, pretty high on the board. You know, they needed people. And, and um, I don't know that I was any more competitive. I just had good letters of recommendation and I was an okay student. And, you know, I was motivated. And I think that that, at the end of the day, if you're fit, you're relatively educated and you're motivated, that's what they, that's what they care about. You know, dude, having that motivation is, is by far one of the best things that you have. And that's for anything that's going in my world, swimmer world, pilot wise, like, like that's our world. You gotta be motivated. If you want it, go after it. Yeah. You know, we tell people all the time and, you know, Spencer and all of us talk about it all the time, but it's like, if your head isn't in there, if it's not something that you want to do, don't get in the cockpit. It's not, right. that is not the right, it is not the right profession for you. If you are not a hundred percent 
this is what I want to do yeah. and, and in it. But, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, that was, uh, Literally. it was quick though. Dude, that's awesome. I love it. I love it. Thanks for sharing. Of course. Spencer, my man, you're up. Well, first of all, a great plug for any of your listeners that might be interested in going into aviation. Cause I think uh, the, the street to sea program or whatever you want to call it, high school to flight school is a really hidden gem within the army community. I didn't know about it. Um, to answer your question, I'll try and be as brief as possible, but a no, lot like me. Well, 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 you don't have to do that. Yeah, I've got all night, my friends. So you just go to town. A lot like uh, almost everything else in my life, I really kind of stumbled into it by a little bit of luck and like being in the right place at the right time. Growing up, I, I as corny as it sounds, like I love Top Gun. It's my favorite movie. I always thought that would be super yes. cool to do, but I don't. I didn't really know like. My grandpa was a Marine in Korea, but like the, I didn't really have come from a military family or anything. So I didn't really know, well, like, how do you become a military pilot? And the only thing in my mind as a 17 or 18 year old is like, well, you have to get into one of the service academies and like you go from there onto flight school. Um, and so I kind of just wrote it off. Like my grades were pretty good in high school, but my standardized tests were maybe like average. Um, just not a great standardized test taker or whatever. And I ended up getting recruited for soccer um, at Navy and the Mercer Marine Academy. And I went to the Mercer Marine Academy um, and I was like, okay, sweet. Like going to Kings Point, a lot of guys go to Navy flight school out of there. So that was my plan. Like, I'm going to go do the Top Gun thing. It's going to be sick. Yeah. Um, my senior year comes around. I am an avid procrastinator. Uh, like I, 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 I do well with the pressure on me, but it's just like, I've always been that way. And uh, you can take, I believe it is the ASTB, or at least it was back then. I guess it's been like 10 years now. Aviation Selection Test Battery, I think. And that's for the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Marine Corps. So the sea services, they have the same uh, pilot training test, essentially. You can take it, I think, up to three times. Um, I waited until the last time to take it. So I only had one opportunity to do it my senior year. And then to compound on that, I didn't study for it uh, because the... The course material on it is like science, math, and some aviation stuff. And I was an engineering major, so I was like, "Well, I've been doing science and math for like the past four years. This will be this will be a breeze." It went about as well as you could have expected it. I think uh, I think I got I don't remember the scoring thing. I didn't pass though, um, and I was like, "Well, fuck! Uh, there goes those three branches, and all that's left is the Air Force and the Army." And I didn't want to go in the Air Force because. Uh, we, you know, we just all kind of talk shit on the air force and everything. So I studied one of the series you're talking shit on. Yeah, exactly. It's not good. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. work out. I probably would have failed that one too, for being honest. So, um, yeah, I was okay. like, well, I gotta, I gotta study for this army one. It was a fast back then. And, uh, quite frankly, it was significantly easier too than the, than the Navy one, just to be transparent with everybody. Um, but yeah, did well on that, passed it, um, and ended up getting a bid to army flight school, which little recruiting point for the Merchant Marine Academy because uh, a lot of people don't know that it even exists, myself included, until I got that letter. Uh, it's a federal service academy. You go to school for free there, um, and you can commission in any branch of the military that you want to to help fulfill your service obligation. So there's you know two routes to do that. Number one is you can go active duty, just like you would go to the Air Force and the Air Force Academy, you know, Army from West Point, et cetera, except for us, you can go into any five. It doesn't matter. There's liaisons from each branch that work on campus um, that will work with you on getting paperwork and all that kind of stuff filled out for that respective branch. So that's really cool 
it's a great backdoor for flight school because only about 30% of the class goes active duty and the rest goes into the maritime industry. Uh, well, their work is like an engineer, a deck officer, and then they'll also hold an eight-year Navy Reserve commitment. And that's kind of how they fulfill um, their service obligations. So I say that because there's less competition for flight school. And then you also have access to all of the flight schools instead of just one of them. So I had guys in my class go to every branch, uh, a couple Army guys, a bunch of Marine Corps and Navy guys, a couple Coasties, and one Air Force dude, if I remember correctly. So it's a great school to like go get a free education, uh, get a pretty good STEM degree, and then like bounce over to flight school if that's something that you want to do. So little pitch, wow. little pitch. Yeah, on that's that. awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I'm all about it. I'm all about getting the the insides, the gouge. You said it earlier, Nick. Get the gouge. Yeah, that way you can get in and get this stuff. Uh, take advantage where you can for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a sick opportunity for sure. Um, so yeah, commissioned in the army. On graduation, and then went down to uh, Fort Rucker, I think a month after that, and started flight school. Total culture shock for me, because I did Navy shit for four years. So I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know, like, half the shit. And our liaison officer, like, on back at the academy, like, he didn't do shit. He was, like, a guy getting ready to retire. He prepped us for nothing. I'd never done land nav before, you know, kind of, like, basic soldiering stuff. So I was uh, starting behind the power curve for sure. So that was fun, just, like, learning basic stuff. And then compounding that on top of learning how to fly and everything. Um, well, it was down at Rucker from fall of 2013 to um, very early 2015. I think we graduated in January 2015 from the 60 course. And then, yeah, went into the, the fleet and actually like started learning how to fly for real once you get to your unit because flight school kind of just makes you competent enough not to do anything too crazy. So, yeah, that's that's my backstory on um on becoming an army pilot dude i love it love it thanks fester yeah i do want to say for the Mm. listeners that are out there understand the a (laughs) to his point the a fast was significantly easier the sift however is not i i unfortunately had the benefit of taking both of them because i took the a fast and then by the time we thought it was good went to go submit and then they canceled the one board, rolled to the next, and it was after the SIFT implementation date. And so I had to go take the SIFT and then resubmit. Mm. The SIFT was substantially harder. So part of the thing, and it did not to go down a rabbit hole, but for people to understand is that there are resources out there, 100%, if you're interested in going that route, study for the SIFT. There, there's a plethora of study guides and everything, but the math and some of the sections actually get progressively more difficult as you answer things correctly. So no matter how knowledgeable you are, they're going to find that limit of, of what you do and don't know, but that's okay. Like if I, if I pass the SIFT, I promise, like I'm not the, I'm not a math whiz, but you know, I knew just enough cause I was in school, but for people who are maybe displaced from school for a little bit or are prior service or are currently serving, looking to transition to be a warrant officer who maybe haven't been in, a, in an academic environment, it was hard coming from college where, you know, I was in algebra and all the, you know, college algebra and calc and all that stuff. It was still hard for me there, let alone you, you put me, you go put me in front of that test. Now I have no idea how I do. So definitely, definitely dive in and, and study for it. That If you take away anything. Right on. Right on. Yeah, it's, just, it's one of those things where if you do the work, it's like work in equals work out. Like 
if you just study for it appropriately, you'll be fine. And flight school is very much the same way. Like it's not easy, but also if you work hard and like do the stuff that you need to do from a study and discipline standpoint, nine times out of 10, you're going to be fought. You're going to be fine. There's the one person occasionally that's just like, isn't wired to be able to fly an aircraft. Um, and like outside of that, if you put in the work, you know, you'll be fine. At least from the army standpoint, I can't speak for the other services haven't gone through their programs, but, uh, yeah. Right on. I dig out of curiosity. How did you two meet? Nick? Yeah. So, so we'll go back, uh, we'll go back to a couple, several years ago now. Um, you know, at the time I was just your normal line pilot in the army. Um, I knew what, in, you know, I knew what Brotalian was everybody, you know, they were growing at the time on Instagram, not nearly the size of what they are today. But at the time I was working on a, a, a soft goods product. I was working on an e-board and ended up not coming to fruition down the road. Uh, just because to be, to be perfectly frank, like I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I did. I had no idea what I was doing and just wasn't really truly prepared to, to go down the road. I thought I was prepared to go down. Uh, but I'd reached out to them because I had the idea of starting the podcast and I was like, Hey, look, like I'm trying to start this thing. You guys have a company. This might be a mutually beneficial way for us to build our companies. Um, well, which, which it was hundred percent. Uh, but I did not know enough about business and what I was doing at the time for that to be remotely successful. So that kind of went by the wayside, but I still had a vested interest in, you know, growing the podcast because it had become something that we had fostered together and that I was deeply passionate about. And that eventually led to, you know, uh, the podcast being fully con you know, fully consumed by Brotalian, which made sense, right? Uh, because they yep. had the most vested into it and, you know, me coming onto the team, but yeah, you know, my original intro to them was just me reaching out to, to Brett on the, who runs the Instagram page and being like, Hey, uh, I have this idea. What do you guys think about it? And they were like, who's this nerd? And, um, uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, the rest is history. Here we are later, you know, but, but the thing is that, you know, the cool part is that was what, 2018, 2019, sometime in that yeah, time. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, flash, flash forward, um, you know, several years later and, and, you know, I'm, I'm doing that we're, I'm working for the company full time. And, you know, it's been, a, it's been a really amazing thing for me. It's become my family. Um, and, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, I looked at the other options that I had when I was leaving active duty and I looking back on them now, I don't think any of them would have been as good as what I'm doing right now. And so, uh, it's been a blessing for me. The, the guys are amazing. The whole team is amazing. And, uh, but yeah, but yeah, it literally just started with, uh, some ideas and a DM and us not knowing what we were doing. If people want to go back and listen to our Fred North episode and the audio quality, they'll, they'll, they will be like, who are, who are these guys? <laughs> these guys are idiots, which we were, we had no clue what we were doing. I was, I was editing on like some free program. Like it was terrible, but got to start somewhere. But yeah, but that's God, how you got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I, so, but you still didn't get into how you two like totally met. Yeah. They, so he, he slid into our DMs basically. Yeah, I slid into their uh, DMs. You can't say these sorry, days. Sorry, Spencer, you are the one that was running the Instagram. Page. Well, Brett, Brett was doing it. We, in the very early days, we'd all get on there and stuff. And he kind of took ownership of it in like the 2018 ish era. I remember this specifically because I was at Fort Polk for a GRTC rotation for three weeks. And I was like sitting at the airport. And Brett hit me up. I was like, hey, this dude DM'd us. He wants to start a podcast. And so, like, we called talked about it. It was like, I mean, it seems like a great idea. I don't know, Jack, should have felt 
doing a podcast, but apparently he does. So I didn't, but we figured it out. We just kind of <laughs> sent it, and uh, you know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and then we. I mean, I don't think when was the when was the first time we met like in person? I mean, because that was yeah, you were at Bragg still. I was down in Florida, and Brett was, I guess, at Bragg as well. But you um, spent most of that time deployed. Yeah, most of the time that I was at Bragg, I was in and out uh, for between exercises and doing other stuff. Um, I met Brett way earlier cause he was living over there at the time. It might yeah. not have been until auction in was Austin. Austin. Yeah. yeah. It was probably in Austin. It was, it was a couple years. Okay. That, and so we did that in what? 2020. Yeah. 2020. So yeah, we worked Dang. together for, you know, a year or so before actually like meeting in person and stuff. And we've since done, you know, some fundraising events and other shit along the way for the foundation, but, um, very cool. Yeah. And then I, one other side note question is, Bro Italian, like you guys, I mean, the Instagram page is ridiculous. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you guys have going on in there and you're connected through so many, I, I mean, the posts that are on there are so many people tagging you guys and uh, collaborating with you guys. It's awesome to see if anybody Thank hasn't you. seen it, go, go check out Bro Italian. But how did that start? Like what brought that into fruition? Yeah. So I can give you the quick like elevator pitch on the whole bro Italian thing. So my first duty station after flight school was, uh, out in Washington, JBLM joint base Lewis McCord. Um, and that's where I met Brett, who's the co-founder of bro Italian and our business partner and, and good friend and stuff. And this other guy, Kyle, uh, Kilroy also still a very good friend, no longer involved with, um, the for-profit side anymore, but we like started a group chat and, we got nicknamed from our battalion leadership, the bro Italian, because we just like flew helicopters and worked out and drank beer on the weekends and stuff. I love it. Dude. That group chat's still around today. Uh, like I was just texting it yesterday with all the original guys in it, which is kind of cool. Um, Sick. and we're literally just working out one day at Kyle's house. He has a, a sick garage gym in the, in the back part of his little property or whatever. And, I think it was Brett that was like, Hey, the, you know, the bro Italian like nickname thing is actually pretty cool. It'd be fun to like, you know, make a couple tank tops or something just for us to work out and not thinking from sales or anything like that. Um, and then we kind of started, that was the early days of Instagram before it was like, so catered and like consumer focused with all this high quality stuff. It was like, Hey, look, I cooked the steak and drank a beer. Let, it, let me take a picture of it and yeah, share it yeah. with my, my 10 friends, you know? So we started taking pictures and videos of us flying and everything. We were, you know, we were fresh out of flight school. People were going through progression, living the dream, like being, you know, military pilots and stuff. And we thought it was really cool. And that's kind of how it started. It started as a page to highlight Army air crew and aircraft. And it started to grow slowly and slowly. And more people started contributing and sending their stuff and what have you. And as we sort of continued through our career progression, the Army, we recognized that there's definitely like a gap in the army aviation community when it came to culture and representation when compared to say like naval aviation and the air force with like squadron bars and call sign parties and flight suit Fridays, and like all this cool uh, morale building shit that they did. That was like, Hey, we're pilots. We're proud of it. This is the stuff that we do. This is part of our culture. The army like had seemed to have forgotten that stuff. Like it maybe went away like post Vietnam or something. And so we kind of recognized an opportunity to try and, you know, create, apparel and products and other shit that you know as we say invokes human motion of flight so it started as an instagram page we kind of recognized a gap pivoted started the the company the business component of it um and and really quite frankly just dicked around with it for a long time it was always just something that 
we put a little bit of time into and we had the custom apparel uh, concept kind of pop up in 2020 from just an issue that I had. I had my deployment shirt from 2017 was like had holes in it and stuff and was all worn out. And I was like, man, that was like, you know, the most fun time of my career. Cause I already knew I was going to be getting out and stuff. And uh, I was like, I wish I had another Bigfoot shirt. And then I kind of like, you know, light goes off. Well, I mean, I'm a part owner of a apparel company. So what if we just did custom apparel for military units? It's a pain in the ass for everybody. We struggled working through it when we were in leadership positions. And so launching that really became kind of the, the key driver of growth for Brotalian. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we've just really went all in on it after that. I mean, I got out in 20, late 2020, I think early 2021, I went to school with the focus of like pivoting and going into corporate America and had more time to focus on Brotalian as a company. I was learning about business and stuff and Brett was transitioning out too. And the more time we were putting in on the business, the more growth we were seeing. And I, I read a book called Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's memoir from Nike. If you haven't read it or if any of your listeners haven't, it's regardless of your thoughts on Nike or whatever, like that book is fucking awesome. And that guy started off with Noted. a made up with a made up company, like selling shoes out of the back of his truck with a couple of scrappy dudes. And now there's like the Nike that you know today. Incredible, incredible story. But there was a couple of things in there that like I really resonated and paralleled with towards the end of business school. And I went to my wife and was like, you know, the money and everything is really good. And like this whole consulting thing and stuff, I knew I was going to be miserable doing it. Nobody like that does it does it for more than like two or three years before they pivot and do something else. And so we have this Brotalian thing. I don't know how scalable it is, but like it's been growing since we've been putting time into it. We don't have any kids or anything. She was like, fuck it. Let's, I mean, let's do it. So that's what we did. Um, And now, like Nick said, it's my full-time job right now. Nick was our first full-time employee that we brought on, which was super rewarding to like be able to facilitate somebody transitioning out of active duty and like give them a job. Um, and granted, we're not like rolling in it or anything right now. We will be one day, but, um, just working with guys and girls that are like great people and doing shit that we want to do. It's pretty cool. So that's like the things that I can say to my employer right now that would get me fired anywhere else is 100% the reason that I chose this job. We're going to have to call HR on that. Can we call well, HR? It's on funny that? you Try say that. So it's funny that you say that because there have definitely <laughs> been multiple times where I'm like, I can say this because we don't have an HR department. So. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. that's great. Dude, I love it, man. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate you sharing all that. Of course. Um, yeah. I, I'm Now what I want to do is I want to, I want to tweak it. I, I got to bring you guys back to a little bit of the real rescue side of things. Yes. That's, that's what I love, man. <laughs> and, um, it just so happens. Like I said it in the beginning, U S army has a different mission than the U S coast guard. Like you're, you're out there to search and destroy. Well, maybe not all the time, but for the most part, you know, yeah. Um, but on occasion, shit goes sideways and you guys are called out to do some sort of rescue something. And um, you guys both have uh, you go both have stories. So I don't care who starts, but yeah, I, I'm ready when you guys are, man. So so I'm going to let Spencer tell his rescue story. But I but before he dives into it, I do kind of want to expand a little bit to help 
people who are maybe, because I'm presumably a lot of your listeners aren't army aviators. They're, you know, outside of the branch uh, to kind of help people wrap their heads around really the primary mission sets of the army in kind of what it is across the scope. Right. So, um, in the army, you have a lot of different units and, and we'll, I'll kind of plug and mention the national guard side as well. Cause that's a whole different beast in the things that they do, but across army aviation, you know, your primary mission sets for a UH 60 Blackhawk, right. Specific to the lift platform are going to be air assault, you know, transporting dudes to go kick indoors or take an objective, whatever that might be. Uh, you're going to have C2 slash VIP. We use the old UH-60 Alpha Lima birds, which are slowly getting phased out. But a lot of times they're used, uh, outfitted with command and control platforms to where they, you know, can help somewhat control a battlefield. Obviously, in the in the near peer future environment, the, those capabilities, we don't know necessarily what they're going to look like. Uh, that's a conversation for not this podcast. But the, uh, but, and then on top of that too, you know, typical air movement stuff, we say VIP, but really air movement of, of people, things, whatever that might be. And then ass and trash. Yep. Ass and trash. And then you have uh medevac now on inside of each of those mission sets, you know, you have all these things, you have sling loads and hoists and, you know, you, you have all these varieties of tasks that fall within those mission sets that are kind of what I'll say, like a la carte to whatever that mission set might be, whether it's an air assault and you might be doing fast ropes insertions into an objective or repels, which most of the time repels aren't super realistic outside of training uh, or sling loads or external loads. But really the only people in the conventional army who do hoist operations are the medevac side. Now the caveat with the national guard comes in is that they do have aircraft that are a little bit of jack of all trades uh, just because of the nature of what they do being called upon by their states to execute whatever that state supported mission is, whether it's law enforcement, uh, you know, aid to law enforcement, search and rescue, um, all of, all of those, like the national guard does a lot of different mission sets that we don't do all of the time on the conventional side. Now, with that being said, just because, uh, and as you'll kind of learn from Spencer, like just because you're an air assault pilot doesn't mean that you're not ever going to be in a, the situation where you're called upon to perform a rescue and vice versa. Medevac has a little bit of different rules that we can chat about later with what you can and can't do, uh, just because of the Geneva convention, whether people abide by that or not. But you know, the, the benefit in the army is that you're kind of the, if you're a Blackhawk pilot, you're literally the Swiss army knife of, of aviation. Nice. You kind of do a little bit of everything, but with, with that being said, I just wanted to preface so that people could kind of understand the realm of lift aviation, you know, of the lift platform in army aviation and how we use it. Um, and those mission sets are all going to be dependent on the type of battalion that you're assigned to the type of company for that matter that you're assigned to. Um, and also to the environment that you're operating in, because a lot of times, you know, you might, have a primary mission set in one place and you might be doing a totally different primary mission set in another operational environment, depending on, you know, what they're asking you to do. But anyway, with that being said, I'll let, I'll let Spencer tell his story. I just kind of wanted to preface that a little bit. No, that's great. Cause like I said, I mean, it's a, it's a totally different mission profile. So you guys are doing so much across the board and it, it changes from one thing to the next to the next. It's it's incredible to say again, kind of fall back to your Instagram page, the Pro Italian Instagram page. You guys get you're posting everything. It's ridiculous what you guys are doing. So anyway, all right, Spence. 
Hit me. What do you got? Yeah, yeah, Nick, thanks for the rundown. It's nice to honestly refresh my memory on that stuff too because I've realized, especially after this weekend, we did a fundraiser and it was catching up with a bunch of people that are still flying active and everything and I just realized that I'm just like, as I move farther and farther away from it, I forget a bunch of shit and like lingo and everything. So it's kind of fun to be thrown back into it a little bit. Um, so like Nick said, my both both flying units as I was a part of on the active side and on the guard was air assault units. So everything we did was time on target training to take a group of people to whatever objective to go kick in a door, whatever, just like Nick said earlier. So I was not a medevac pilot. Um, my rescue experience came downrange in Afghanistan in 2017. I was fortunate enough to be up north in Mazari Sharif, and we had a small component up there of uh, two H-60s from our assault company. Um, so myself, it, basically two crews um, that manned that, and we did a lot of deliberate operations and air assaults up there, which was actually a really, really awesome experience for us because – Nine times out of 10, the only people doing legitimate like time on target air assaults is going to be the 160th. Um, so being able to do that as a conventional asset was a real blessing because that training is a, a complete pain in the ass. And it's it, it gets just really redundant when you're consistently doing these fake air assaults with a lot of times not even anybody in the back just to fly time on target and do all that. So mm -hmm. to put your training to the actual use and that deployed environment was a lot of fun. Um, nice. and the guy that I was battle rostered up there too, was just a great dude as well. Former 160th guy. And I learned a ton flying with him every day. And so anyways, it was a really cool experience. Um, and we were kind of up on our own away from the flagpole, no hat, no salute compound. It was a great time. I could have asked for a better deployment experience. Um, also with us were, uh, I forget, I think two, two uh, Chinooks, two CH-47s, and then two medevac purebirds. Um, and so the way that Army Aviation works, uh, Nick, please feel free to jump in if I start butchering some of this stuff. But um, after, is it every 14 days, you have to have a 24-hour reset um, from working, essentially, to help eliminate crew fatigue, essentially, like, nice. brought on from stress and overwork. Like, you don't want a guy making a mental mistake that costs people their lives, so... Every 14 days or at some point during a 14-day period, you have a 24-hour reset, and then that restarts that 14-day clock. Um, and we, you never fly solo. You never fly single ship, uh, at least in that coin environment. You always had a wingman or a sister ship or whatever you want to call it. So every once in a while or every 14 days, uh, one of those medevac birds would have to take a reset, and they would pull one of our assault birds to fly what we called med chase with them. So they still had their wingman, essentially. Um, cool. So we would, we would fall in on that, you know, every couple of weeks or so, however it was structured out. And, um, I mean, this is 2017, so we were obviously still conducting combat aberrations and everything, but from an operational tempo, as far as what Afghanistan looked like, say, you know, five years earlier than that, it was a little bit different. Um, and so the running joke was that, yeah, you're on med chase, but you know, you're not flying that day or anything. Um, and we were reversed out because everything that we ran up north was at nights. So period of darkness was, was everything. So uh, my buddy Chaz, the guy that I mentioned, and I were on medevac chase for that 24-hour period. And uh, <clears throat> so when he came in and woke us up at, for us, what was like the middle of the night, but it was actually, I think, like 10 o'clock in the morning or something. <laughs> um, and it was like, hey, you might have a medevac situation. And we're like, oh, shit. And Chaz, ultimate professional, you know, tons of experience under his belt, just started like, 
hey, this is what we're going to do is like you and I are going to be cranked up and ready to fucking rock and roll before the actual medevac pure bird. I guarantee it. Um, he was like, that's our goal right now is to be ready to rock before they are. This is their job. We'll be better at it than them. Sure as hell. Like we were ready to rock before they were. He's like, we don't need half this shit to get this bird in the air. We'll turn most of it on like in flight. Good to go. So we go out there. We're kind of like cranked up waiting. We get the approval to go. Got a grid. And it was just like call tower, present position departure, real world medevac, clear everything up, pop up and go. Um, and this was at a campus. It was a, a blue on green incident. Uh, so there was an insider attack with an SFODA over at Camp Shaheen, which I don't necessarily remember. I want to say it was maybe like 20 miles to the west of Mez. So if you're looking at a map of Afghanistan, Mez is up on the north on like the Tajikistan and some of those other Istan borders. Um, and then Camp Shaheen was like, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 nautical miles just to the west of that. I mean, it was like a, it was like a 20 minute flight. It was super quick. Um, so we went right to the grid. This was not like, we weren't getting shot at or anything crazy here. The guys had secured the situation. Um, but from my understanding, they had, uh, one of the ANA forces that they were working with had been AWOL for a little bit or like hadn't shown up for training for a few days. He came back, um, launched three RPGs into the American forces, um, injuring seven of them. Um, they ended up obviously taking care of that dude. So we come in and land and, uh, they had everything secured and they're just, you know, bringing, I mean, there were seven guys. So both birds were loaded up. They put the most critical guys over on the pure med bird so they could actually start working on them. Cause I think two or three of them were like in pretty critical condition. And then the guys that weren't as bad off were thrown into the back of ours. Um, and we were flying doors off out there for dust lightings and visibility and stuff. And, uh, this, this dude, if you guys are familiar with um, Game of Thrones, the mountain, like just that giant beast of a man, there was a guy that I shit you not looked just like that guy with his shirt off, a fucking beard and like blood all over his face. And he comes over and just like reaches into the cockpit to give you the, you know, like, like to pound it. And it was just like a, a quiet mutual respect of like, you know, you guys are here for us. We're here for you. Get the boys out. Um, so that was like the most rewarding experience of my entire relatively short military career so we got them out of there took them back to mez then they jumped and went down to bagram to go to the role and out to europe and all seven ended up living so oh well done yeah it was nice. it was pretty cool i also i i want to say and I, i've never been able to confirm this and i tried to when i was down there but i don't know i'm like 90 percent sure that it was uh seventh group guys and i went and did my last um my last duty station was at seventh group as an aviation liaison officer so it was kind of cool to go down to that organization albeit i don't know which battalion or, or which like company or oda it actually was that we supported that day um but kind of cool to go like full circle like we helped those guys out and then i go get to hang out as my last few days in the army on another no hat no salute compound and work with some of those dudes which was really fun so um that's it man nothing super crazy or anything but it, it was a real world medevac experience very rewarding um and and you know seven guys ended up getting to go home and see their friends and family at some point because we were able to go execute that so it was pretty cool spencer that is badass and i Thank love you. how you're like oh well, it's no big deal it was it was really you know just nothing much really you're like flying into some combat zone to pull dudes out and saving their life um that's freaking badass, bro. Yeah, I mean, oh, it, was, it was legit. Um, people have done way more, way more crazier shit. So 
Um, you know how many people say that to me? Oh yeah, so and so did something crazy. It doesn't matter. That's what you did at that moment in time. You were on call. You were on duty. You're the one that flew in there. Nobody yeah. else. You. Well, you and your crew. All right, you and the crew. That's freaking awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, hell yeah. Very special experience for sure. Um, I'll, I don't. I mean, I hope that I never forget it. In particular, the the fist bump that was gets me bricked up just thinking about it. So. That's pretty sick. That's the most detail I can give you on it from what I really remember. I mean, it all happens, you know, so quickly. And then it's kind of a blur afterwards. Um, the emotion set in a little bit, you know, once you have a minute to shut down and let the dopamine drop, come down and all right. that kind of stuff. But yeah. So out of curiosity, uh, with because you said you had the med bird with you. So did you Correct. guys as as a bit of a backup so. yeah so we were we were med chase that other med bird was on their 24-hour reset so they couldn't go out and fly with them um okay. and we were just their sister ship essentially their chalk one we're chalk two um cool. and do you have medics and stuff in the back with you guys as well mm -mm. that's no. why i was saying oh, the no. most critical guys went on the med pure because they've got the platform and the actual medic back there to work on them okay. um they i'm pretty sure i mean i'm I have no idea, but I would have to imagine that one of the Deltas went on our bird as well so that they could continue to execute care on there. Because we were all seats out at that time too, so you could get yeah. a bunch of dudes back there. Um, so I'm sure they had a Delta go on to continue to do whatever it is that they could do with the resources that they had. But yeah, no, we don't have any medics or anything on a typical assault bird, so just regular yeah. old crew dogs. Gotcha. All right. Another question is, how much information do you actually get as the pilots up front of what's going on in the back of the aircraft. And I asked that because for me, when I'm in the back, I, I like to communicate with my pilots up front mm -hmm. all the time. But again, in the army bird, are you guys, do you have comms other than the crew chief in the back? Do you know what's going on in the back? We had comms with the crew chiefs in the back. Um, we did not have any headsets or anything else set up for anybody else back there on like a deliberate aerosol type of mission. We would actually, we would absolutely have a couple cables run, usually two headsets for like a team leader. And then if you had a JTAC on the back too, he would be wired in. Um, but outside of that, you're relatively constrained with how many people you can have on comms. And I'm, that, I don't think that was anything that even crossed our mind when it was like, get to the bird, get it spooled up as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I don't think we had, I, I know for a fact, we didn't have any of the, the packs in the back, like the Delta or anything, giving us updates. Obviously our crew chiefs were talking to us and I mean, everything, behind that fucking black line is their zone. So they're managing that scene back there and making sure everybody is secured safely and, you know, squared away. And then they're just letting us know that like, Hey, they're bringing on, okay, we got three wounded on board or, you know, whatever the number is. So-and-so yeah. secure. It looks like somebody's given treatment to this guy and if they can assist in any way they can. Um, and again, it seats out. So they've got their monkey harness and stuff on so they can move around back there, even in flight relatively freely and make sure everybody's good. Um, with that said, the, the med pure side is a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, and I, and Nick, this is actually a great segue too. So, like I said, I was an aerosol pilot. I didn't fly any medevac birds or real medevac missions outside of that one incidence. But Nick was actually um, in a medevac unit for a while when he was at Bragg. And so he can probably talk a little bit more intelligently on like the actual mission set, how they conduct operations, hoists, all that kind of stuff. Perfect. Well, yeah. Spence, man, before we get into that, Nick, dude, Spencer, well done to you Thanks, and your brother. crew. Thank you. Freaking, that's badass, dude. I, I love it. Thanks for sharing. We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors, Breeze Eastern. 
the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. All right, Nick. Yeah, so it's funny. <laughs> it's funny because he says that. I was I wasn't in the med at, at Bragg. I was in the med at my last unit at Campbell. Uh, oh, sorry. No, you're fine, man. We, you know, it's funny because I would argue that Spencer's, you know, that Spencer's mission was more of a med mission than what I ever did. And I, and I hate to say got to do, because I, I, you know, you don't ever want anybody to be hurt. And that's kind of, you know, and, and I say that because that in essence is the hardest part about being in an army medevac unit, because when you are out pulling med duty and you're on call, it is a game of boredom into sheer adrenaline because you're sitting there playing cards or whatever else while you're on call for, you know, typically a 24 hour period. And it's hard because you're like, man, I want to go fly. But you're also like, "Mm, I don't want to go fly because if I'm out flying right now, that means someone's hurt, you know, and somebody needs me to move them. So, um, but yeah, to Spencer's point, you know, I, I spent most of my career in the assault and even when I was in a, you know, a command and control company, we still really did assault. It was part of the 101. If you're a part of the 101 and you're flying Blackhawks, you're doing air assaults. You know, they don't, they don't care. But uh, the last, you know, I, I went to a professional school. And when I came back from that specialty tract, I got moved over to the medevac where I spent uh, about the last year, year and a half of my career. And it was eye-opening to me because, you know, my whole career I spent doing those time on targets, like he mentioned and training to assault the objective and to move the dudes to kick down doors and working, you know, with, you know, suppression of enemy air defenses, all this stuff. And you go to the med and it's not that it's not there. It's just a totally different mindset from the way the unit is structured to how it runs to the minds to the, to the mission mindset, because everything that you do, they're like, Hey, like, we, how do we take this training event and focus it on the medevac mission set? And so for me, initially, that was really hard because I had just come out of this school to try to teach people how to fly against, you know, fly in radar denied environments. And here I am, I'm like, okay, how do I take this knowledge that I have that I was 100% ready to apply to air assault operations and make it relevant to the medevac mission set, which historically, I mean, it's not Vietnam and we're not, for the most part, actively in some of these other areas, you know, the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan have slowed down somewhat on the conventional army side. And, you know, it's, it's not 2017 or even 2015 where the med, the med birds were rolling 24 seven on, you know, picking up, picking up our guys and, and NATO partners and, you know, locals to run these missions. And so a lot of what, you know, my real world, my quote unquote real world med experience was from pulling real world medevac coverage for our own divisions training exercises uh, stateside, which was a a little bit different. Um, but I still was able to see a little bit of the structure and and how everything works because we we run all this stuff in training and you know you go out and we we do you know specifically at Campbell we have the benefit of Fifth Special Forces Group being at Fort Campbell and we had the benefit of doing all these training exercises with them on. Hey, you know, how do your 18 deltas, which is, you know, the special forces medics, how do they integrate? If we pick you guys up, what are your, you know, standard procedures? What's going to happen? What do you guys want from us? And then it was great for our medics in the back because they're able to learn from these guys who've been through SOCOM and been through all of these courses on, you know, Hey, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? What does this look like? What can I take from this experience and apply to these future medevac missions? Um, and nice. so, 
you know, something that we train specific dispensers point when you are to your question about, you know, asking, you know, what does that conversation piece look like when you have somebody in the back of the aircraft and something that we got really, really good at doing was, you know, running 99% of your training scenario-based training is all going to be, um, or has been for the last couple of years, conducting medevac operations in a near peer environment. So like, Hey, how do we do these if we're in a radar denied environment or where we might have to be right on the forward line of troops, which is, you know, historically a little bit different than transporting people between facilities far behind the lines. And so what does that look like in terms of like, cool, we pick this guy up. What is the medic need from me up front? How busy are they? How many people can we take? And a lot of times what that conversation looks like or may look like, uh, because if we have a, you know, if we have an ambulatory patient who's maybe not critical or something like that, chances are the medic isn't going to be super task saturated. They're going to stabilize, make sure they're good to go. Cool. We're transporting them to maybe a role two facility that has some basic care, nothing crazy. Um, yeah. If you take somebody who, you know, might be a single or double tourniquet or more, or, you know, has some significant issues, critical patient, you know, things of that nature where they're now actively trying to stabilize the entire flight or get an airway or all that. A lot of times that medic is going to be communicating to you what they need at that facility that you're taking that patient to, whether that's like, Hey, and what, and it's on the pilot and command or the, it's on the pilots to ask them be like, Hey, you know, what do you, what do you need? What do you do? Do you want to talk to them? Do you want me to talk to them? Because you're already radioing yeah. ahead to that medical facility of like, Hey, this is what we're bringing you guys do do we need an airway team? Do you, do you have an airway team at this facility? Cause if you don't, we need to start running calculations on being able to get this guy somewhere where they, they do have that. And so yeah, the, where, where you don't have the planning side that maybe goes into a time on target, your planning for the medevac side in the army becomes understanding, especially in an operational environment, the capabilities of all these facilities, the timing it takes to get to each one, because at the end of the day, even though we have all the time and we might have all the fuel in the world, the guy that's in the back, depending on his injury may not have that. And so, you know, all of those things compound to, to make it stressful. Um, and while I don't have any crazy stories, probably I, the one, I, the one I can tell was, you know, probably it was my first, uh, you know, first real world medevac call. We're, we're out in the training area at Fort Campbell and, you know, here I am, you know, I've, I've been in the army a while and, you know, I'm a, I'm a pilot in command. I'm a tracked guy. So, you know, I'm a, I'm not, su- I'm not junior. I'm not super senior, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a go-to person. I'm supposed to know what the heck's going on. Right. And so I'm sitting here talking to some of the other guys that have been medevac for a while, like my buddy, Matthew and, and James Thomas, and some of these guys that are just incredible, super knowledgeable people who've done this stuff over and over again. And I'm like, okay, so I have this radio. What like I get a call because we, I've, and at this point I've trained it a hundred times in scenario, you know, t- t- take this junior pilot out and just destroy them for two hours on why they don't know how a pulse Doppler radar works and all this, you know, all this stuff. And I'm sitting here like, okay, we get a nine line. What does this actually look like? How does this actually work? So, you know, the process, you pick up on it quick, you know, you're carrying a radio, they call out nine line, nine line, nine line. And half the time it's, you know, some radio operator who is a young kid who's sitting at the radio and he's like, Oh, never mind, Sorry. And you just like woke up shit yourself took a piss while you're took a piss while you're running to the tent to try to like find out the info. But you know, typically the way that typically the way that goes is that, you know, your pilot in command and your medic, when you get that nine line call, you'll run to the operations tent 
uh, most of the time in most scenarios and setups, you run to the operations tent so that you can start getting that nine line information, you know, getting the grid, getting, you know, the type of patient that it is, which, which about half the time it's wrong. You know, a lot of times, of course, well, but, but, you know, <laughs> we say, of course, Terrible. we, we say, of course, but a lot of times I understand it from a ground commander, you know, a ground uh, person's perspective, because they always want to overclassify whatever's going on because there's that sense of urgency. They want their guy to get help. And so I get that. And, uh, yep. you know, we get, we get, we get this call and I run to the, I run to the 10, I'm telling my PI, you know, who's this, the, you know, the junior, not a pilot in command yet pilot. Um, their job is, you know, to take the crew chief and the PI cause the medical, the actual medevac birds, you have a, oh wow. You have a crew chief and a, and a medic in the back. So you have, you know, you, instead of two crew chiefs, you have a crew chief and a medic and the crew chief and the PI run out to the aircraft and they're supposed to get up, you know, on the APU and they're supposed to have, they're supposed to have the oh. aircraft up to, uh, to engine starts. Like they don't, they're not allowed to start the aircraft with one pilot, but they can do everything, you know, and we had, we had a procedure, you know, like, Hey, get in the aircraft, get everything going, have up on I uh, I don't know if you guys have FMSs in uh, the sixties yep. in the coast guard, you know, have, have a waypoint up so I can enter in the grid as soon as I get in all that stuff. So here I am. It's my first nine line I've ever gotten in my entire life. And I, my heart's pumping and they're like, this guy's a critical, he's dehydrated, he's passed out, you know, which is, which is a serious, I mean, it's the middle of the summer and in Tennessee, like people that can be a real thing. People can get really sick. And you know, this dude is apparently passed out unconscious and all this stuff. So, you know, I'm hauling, they give us an eight digit grid, which obviously is no help to anybody because we don't know what's right and what's wrong. So, you know, we're sitting there working with them on a 1980s computer system to try to get a, a proper grid. And, uh, and so we finally get a, we finally get a good grid. Um, and or they gave us a nine digit grid, not an eight digit grid. They gave us a nine digit grid. I'm like, I don't know which, which way this is supposed to go. I, do I round up? Do I round down? So we finally get the grid. I get out to, we're hauling out to the aircraft and I see my PI. Like I never heard the APU on the, on the aircraft start. And I like, and I realized this while I'm standing there waiting for the info. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. We'll deal with it when we get out there. And we we're like on our way out there. And my, my PI is like outside of the aircraft with it, like f- messing with his gear. And I'm like, what is going on? He's like, I, I need to take my jacket off. And I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean you need to take it? He's like, ah, I got in and I was hot. And I'm like, get your ass inside of the aircraft. Let's go. So, you know, we, we get in, we get in there and we get in there and, and, and go pick this guy up. And, uh, it was outside of that. It was quite the experience. This guy was completely out of it. He was conscious by the time we got there. And, you know, they, from where we picked him up, we weren't going to take him, uh, cause you know, where we, where we operate here locally, you know, there's the local hospital on base, but then like all of the truly critical certain things, whether it's eyes, you know, eye injuries, severe lacerations, like anything, anything truly severe, it's going to get flown down to Vanderbilt and Nashville. And then we have a really good working relationship with them to where, you know, we have their frequencies. We call ahead, we fly down there. We train, we train not necessarily with them, but we fly down to their pad because it is a rooftop pad down there. And so we understand. Yeah. So we understand how all of it, those procedures work. Right. And so, you know, we get them over there and our, and as always we get there, they're supposed to have an ambulance like on the pad, ready to do a patient transfer. They're not ever there. So, uh, this is at the, this isn't Vanderbilt. This is at the, you know, the base hospital. And 
so our crew chief and this guy get out and they're buddy carrying, you know, one's got this guy by the shoulders and the other guy has his feet and they're just waddling their way over to the ER with this guy in their hands. And I kid you not, I watched them drop him twice while they're on his way, like on the way. And I'm just sitting there. I'm just sitting there with my hands in my, with my hands on my face, like this whole thing could not have gone any worse. And on top of that, I missed like every single radio call I was supposed to make. I didn't get wheels up or wheels down calls. I didn't talk to range control. I was just like Leroy Jenkins. We're on the way. We're going to get this guy. It was like everything that everything that I knew, like completely went out the window. And you know, to like every bit of professionalism oh that I I felt like I had. And you know, I, I joke about it now because the guy was totally fine. He was dehydrated, and you know all that stuff. But he you know, he was fine. Uh, but, you know, in my head, I'm like, we're, this is going to be great. And we go do this. And like, after the fact, I looked down at my phone and I had like four messages of like, Hey, are you guys wheels up and wheels down? And it dawned on me. I was like, I didn't make a single radio call from the time we left until the time we got to the hospital. So, you know, hopefully we're, hopefully we're good. And we got like, I went wheels up and I called range control and I'm like, Hey, we're, we're wheels up. And he was like, what do you mean your wheels up? And I was like, yeah, we're wheels up from the hospital. And he's like, how long have you been there? And I was like, I don't know, three or four minutes. And he was just like, okay. And I was like, well, we're in and out back up there. I totally played it off. Like we didn't do anything wrong, but, uh, but yeah, that, that was my first, that was my first quote unquote real world, uh, medevac experience. And, uh, needless to say after that, I, I caught onto it pretty quick and it just, it's such a different, excuse me. It's just so different from the air assault world because everything happens so fast that, comparatively speaking to what I was used to, you know, I was used to this very deliberate planning process that cool. If you get a change halfway through the mission, that's awesome. You address it, but it wasn't like the information overload. Cool. Have it in hand time to go execute. Like that was a very foreign thing to me. And it was a very big learning experience for me because I had to step back and realize like, okay, cool. It goes back to that old saying like, Hey, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. If I, if oh, I rush, you know, if I rush my crew and I rush myself, you know, I, I don't even think I turned my transponder on. I mean, I was, we were, I was just going in my head. I'm like, we're going to go get this guy. And, and when you, when I stepped back, you know, it's funny because they time us, you know, we, we have, uh, in our op center, they time all the missions and it's not to like, see who's the fastest, even though, you know, we do look at that. Um, it's really just to, you know, know. Hey, what was the, what was the level of care this patient needed? How long did it take us to get them there? All of that information, which is good for us to know, um, in terms of fuel planning and, and, you know, if we go back and say, well, this took longer because X, Y, and Z didn't go to plan or wasn't what we thought, or maybe they called us into a grid that was wrong. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of those tools that come out of it, but on the backside too, you know, it really set in for me then on that first one. And the benefit of it was, you know, it was daytime. It was beautiful. It was clear blue 22 outside. Couldn't have asked for a, a nicer day. Um, there was no, I think that, you know, as pilots, when we have those pristine conditions outside, it gives us this like idea that we're invincible, that we can, you know, there's nothing out there that's going to hurt us. We can go rush this as fast as we want and everything else will work out. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, you kind of have to step back because everything we do in aviation, as you know, and as Spence knows, it's all muscle memory and, um, you know, that really played in because not a week later, you know, I was on a night shift and, um, I, I was second up in the first up aircraft 
got called uh, for for a, a true critical patient that had to be taken down to Vanderbilt, and um, and it was less than 500 foot ceilings in a, about a one, uh, one mile vis, and um, and this is at nighttime and. And those kind of situate, cause I remember looking up and the, you know, we, we track the weather pretty closely because all of that stuff, when you're pulling real world medevac has to be reported up pretty much to the highest levels. Cause they have to know if their evacuate air evacuation assets are able to fly or not. And, uh, they were able to launch because for us, we were briefed, you know, briefed on our risk assessment to be able to fly those for real world medevacs if they needed an air, you know, evac, if they weren't able to be FL or, uh, you know, transported by a field ambulance and those things, especially if they needed to go to Vanderbilt. And I saw them launch that night and I, I saw them when they got back and, and how, um, you know, while I wasn't on it, I was able to look up at the sky and I'd flown in enough adverse weather conditions in my career at that point to know that that's not one I would have been super comfortable with. And that really hones on to like, at the end of the day, if you rush to the point where you're putting your crew in danger, you're not going to be able to help that patient at all. Right. And so, you know, for me, uh, that really just forced slowing down, you know, doing things right. And at the end of the day, when, when you slow, like I saw it firsthand when I just took a breather, slowed down, processed everything appropriately. And, and, you know, didn't rush my crew. We were faster because nobody, that, that stress just is, is off of people. And, and you kind of get that realization is like, Hey, yes, we have this mission. We're assessing it. The medic's going to take care of them. If yeah. I am, if I am faster by five seconds or slower by five seconds, that could be chances are the patient isn't going to, that's not going to make a difference for the patient, but that could absolutely make a difference. If I miss a critical point on a checklist that now is going to cost the lives of my crew. Um, Very if, much so. Yeah. And, and, and all that to say, you know, I, I know one of the, one of your points in terms of discussion is training. Like if there's anything I can, I can push home to people. It's that, you know, if you're faster than the point, like you can be comfortable not using a checklist and all that stuff all day long, but you add in a real world stress factor of a mission set that you're performing in an operational environment. If you, you know, if you're not hitting that stuff by the T you're going to miss something and whether and, and that one thing, oh, really? that one thing you miss might be, it might be a transponder, which at the end of the day, like cool FAA might slap us on the wrist or it could be something significantly larger um, where like the, it's just a system that needs to be on versus off or, you know, there, there, there are implications yeah. that could happen. And, um, and, you know, I think that of, of all the things I got in the med, the biggest was the crew coordination uh, specifically with yep. hoisting operations. That's probably the, uh, one of the most physically demanding things I have ever done with an aircraft is holding a hover for however long we've had to hold it. I mean, some of those were quite a while while, you know, you have, and you have to be on your game because you have a live person on that hoist line that, you know, they're trusting that you're not an idiot and you're sitting there looking like God. That's totally you- true. <laughs> we are all of us are in the back. He's like, nah, we gotta get sawed sick up front. He'll be fine. Yeah, Hold and then <laughs> yeah, you're like, you're like, you know, all you hear in your head is like, even if they're not saying it, you just hear drifting, drifting. Drifting, and I'm like, I'm not fucking drifting. I swear, like, I'm trying to hold. I can't hold it anymore. There's a 17 knot crosswind right now. Like, you know, this you're just uh, you're going through those things. But, um, but you know, I will say the crew coordination aspect specifically for for hoist operations, um, especially when you start throwing that into confined area, you know, hoist operations and things like that. Or totally, um, it's something that I had never seen before in my career, 
And what was a really hard part for me, and I'm sure you guys have it in the Coast Guard as well, is as a pilot in command and as a pilot, you know, that if you're a pilot in the Med who's going to become a pilot in command, trusting your crew chief that's in the back that for us, you know, we have a crew chief that's in the back typically that is our hoist operator. And it's really hard as a pilot in command, even though we do have the hoist control panel up front, if we, you know, if we have to, in our emergency procedure, provide assistance to them, I'm sure you guys have the same, but you know, sometimes we all have a couple people where you're like, man, I don't know, like, are they going to give me the right indications? But I will say like, never once did I have that all of the, all of those guys that, that I ever flew with were, were so on top of it because up front, like I'm sitting here looking back and I'm looking forward and I'm looking over at my PI while they're just like staring at a freaking tree that isn't actually there. I don't know what they're looking at. And I'm like, man, I wish this guy had hoist faster, but like the amount of control, I mean, they're sitting there like pushing the hoist cable with like their feet and their arms and like controlling it. So it's just right. And it's totally just, it's just a totally different world that is a, a next level of crew coordination that I really grew to, to respect and have an appreciation for. Um, and we had talked a lot about, you know, like, what does this look like if we have to do it over water? Cause I never did overwater hoist stops personally. Um, but you know, it becomes a big deal when you're talking visual reference points and all that, because they don't exist. And, um, right. and you know, that, that's something over water is a whole nother, like, Whole nother ball game. Right. But, but, to, but to that point, you know, you're, you're sitting here and looking at all these aspects and you're like, man, that's where, you know, if I can hit home anything, it's just that crew coordination on the med side is something that I think that every arm pilot in the army, even if just for a little bit, like go get hoist qualified, go over. And if you are a UH 60 Mike pilot and you have a med unit, that's, you know, somehow going to let you spend some time over there just to understand the crew coordination aspect of it, because I don't know if in the Coast Guard you guys did dynamic hoists or if everything was static. Uh, and most of it's static. They, it's been a little while since I've been in, but the majority of the stuff for me was pretty static. You roll over, hold the hover, you go out, and then you come back in. Um, I do like the dynamic stuff of moving. Uh, moving in, it rotor, like all the dynamics behind it, rotor washers behind you, mm-hmm. you have forward wind coming through you, it stabilizes the load, blah, blah, blah. Like I, that's a whole other conversation. But I I like the option of having both. So absolutely all the dynamic, but static does come in handy from time to time. So yeah, and and you know, for for me, I, I definitely prefer dynamic because I'm like, cool, like I usually don't have to deal with an oscillation. The only part right. for me is I'm like sitting here looking at trees and wires and they're like telling me where he's at. And I'm like, are you sure he's high enough? Are you like, or where, where is he really at? You know, I'm like, how's your depth perception? Have you had your eyes checked recently? Because my aircraft is, I, this says I'm at a hundred feet and you're telling me that he's 25 feet and there those wires are at 50. Like the math doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, um, but you know, all of those things, all of those things, I think. Oh, I so wish you and I could go fly together. I really, really do. It'd be so fun. Well, I'd be like, do you know how to hover this? Come on, sir. What are you doing? Well, you know, I mean, the true thing is, you know, it, it truly is a whole different technique. And then, you, but you get better at it. It's it's that muscle memory yeah, thing. Yeah. And of course, like on the army side, for safety reasons, you know, most of the time, if you're doing live hoist, you couple up. If you're, you know, whether you're doing static or as you're coming in, you're coupling up. Uh, to the system just because it's going to give better stability most 99% of the time and then reduce pilot fatigue. Um, 
the only time that we found that really doesn't work is in, you know, adverse wind conditions, which I'm sure you guys dealt with significantly on the Coast Guard side over water. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, like I don't have any crazy stories necessarily like Spence. Most of mine are, are luckily somewhat comical between, you know, non-serious real world things. We did have a guy that we picked up um, on a real world that had an eye injury that was pretty disgusting. Um, he wasn't wearing eye pro at night. And we went to pick him up and it was actually interesting. It was cool because it was not cool. That's a bad word. The guy's okay. Caveat to that. He was not serious. He didn't lose his eye, but uh, we get this call and it was our battalion's AO, but we weren't there. We were kind of displaced and pulling real world. We were still living in the field. They didn't let us operate out of the hangar because we still had to be acting like we were in a deployed environment. So we go over there and my battalion commander, God love him. He is a, he's a, he spent most of his career in special operations. And if you ever met him, you would know immediately that that was the case. And we go in and I'm like, Oh, where's the LZ? And I guess I, I like kind of like tilt my head and I see this smoke grenade going off. I'm like, Oh, there it is. He was so happy that he got to throw a smoke grenade and mark the LZ. So we circle around <laughs> and we land and this poor kid comes out with this eye covering on and he walked in. He didn't have eye pro on the night prior. And mind you, this is like late afternoon. There's like four or five o'clock in the afternoon, early evening. And this kid just comes walking out. Like you can see he's got tears on one side of his face and he had an eye covering on and he didn't have eye pro on the night before. And he was walking back to his tent and walked into a tree branch, which penetrated his eye. And, uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So they, uh, yeah, they, <laughs> I remember him getting in. I had a, uh, we had one of our medics, Stephen Ty, who, uh, one of the best medics I've ever had the pleasure of, of flying with. And I, I learned a lot from them. And, um, you know, all, all the guys in the back are, are, um, they're all, you know, EMT. They have all of these crazy certifications. They're really, really intellectual people. And uh, he, he gets in the back and I'm like, Hey, what's wrong with him? He's like, it looks like he's got an eye wound. And I'm like, yeah, from the eye patch, I could have deduced that, bud. Thank you for that critical information. <laughs> And he's, kept it <laughs> yeah. he's like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to take it off and see what's going on. And I was like, okay. And he like started to pull it up and this like pus is coming out. And it was probably, it was probably the most disgusting. I about threw up in the aircraft cause it was like white and milky. And, um, <laughs> Spencer, Spencer's over there like, nope, can't do it. But you know, guy out. we're field critical. Sorry, bud. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we take him, you know, but, but, but the whole thing is it's, it's great. We can tell the story because he didn't lose his eye. He's, you know, I'm probably doesn't have 2020 anymore, but he didn't lose his eye. And, um, you know, we, we got, we got him to where he needed to go and all that. But most of, most of my personal experiences were a lot of heat cats, you know, that just didn't know how to stay properly hydrated. Uh, we had part of what they fell, they put on the uh, medevac was, uh, operation liquid IV where we literally had cases of the liquid IV packets that we were taking around to all the infantry units because it was so hot. And the problem was that it was in the time of year where we were moving from spring into summer. And so the evenings were a little bit cool. People didn't feel like they needed to hydrate, but then the daytimes were getting up into the nineties and people were just getting completely demolished. They didn't have the clothing. They were either overdressed or underdressed, all the stuff that just led to some serious dehydration cases that pretty much spanned that whole time. Um, which was great for us because when, when we looked to the future, we were able to kind of adjust what we had on, whether we needed more like lactate readers, or, you know, saline, whatever we needed on the aircraft, if we had to actually provide like life-saving measures to somebody who was dehydrated. But yeah, they legitimately had us take 
you know, boxes of liquid IV out to these, out to these units to help disperse them, to keep people hydrated and, and all that. But all that to say, you know, there are, there are a lot of the guys I had the pleasure of serving with that, that when you look at their accolades, you know, they have, they have air medals and they've, they have distinguished flying crosses for these missions that they conducted over in deployed environments for, you know, performing the medevac mission set in a, you know, in a non-permissive environment where some of them lost crew members, some of them, um, you know, had to, had to put a medic down that they weren't able to go pick their medic back up because of whatever the situation was. And, and all of those experiences helped develop, you know, people who, while I wouldn't consider myself a junior pilot, when I, when I left the military in my head as to the medic, you know, the medical mission said, I felt like a junior pilot, even though I was in a senior, more senior role. And so for me, I, I had to lean on a lot of those guys who maybe even in their career progression were, were not quite where I was, but they had just such a vast amount of knowledge compared to myself. And in terms of like, Hey, like, how do we actually do this? And what does this look like? Um, which is why, you know, Skedco's and things like that. Like, I didn't know like why everybody hated Skedco's. The moment I did a Skedco, I was like, Oh, that sucks. That's, that's dumb. Why would, why would we ever use a Skedco? Like, you know, there's just yeah. all, all of those risks associated with it. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. And, um, and so you kind of get thrown into the fire when, when you're going over there as somebody who's supposed to be an experienced aviator, which inherently to Spencer's point is the hard part with the army, because you don't like, you can spend a career in air assault. You can be a CW four battalion standardization pilot who all of a sudden gets tagged onto a medevac ATP when you may have never flown medevac your entire career. But at the end of the day, that W one or that junior CW two is going to look at you and be like, Hey, what do I do? And so do right. you, you have two options? You either make up something, which sometimes works, or, you know, you, you lean on those people who have the experience, you know, to learn. And, um, <laughs> outside of that, you know, while we were, <laughs> it's funny because we talked about the SAR, you know, what, you know, search and rescue side. And, and we were on, while we were on call, I remember one night we got spooled up, um, and it was probably the true, the only true search and rescue mission that I ever saw even start to come down the pipe for us specifically. And I know there are other units out there who, who do that a little bit more on, especially on the national guard side. Um, but there was a, uh, cause where Tennessee sets, you know, you're not as the crow flies, you're not far from Mississippi and all these other places. Right. And so yeah. apparently there was this boat that went missing on the Mississippi river, like down in Mississippi and they couldn't find them. And then it turned into they found them, but like the boat was on an island and they didn't have like the police department there didn't have any boats to be able to go get them. And so they were like freaking out and going through this national, like they were about to send Northcom the approval because we were like looking up. We had no idea. We're like, I don't know who to get approval from. This police department called Fort Campbell asking if we could send a helicopter down to help them recover this, these people who are drinking beer and got stuck on an island down in Mississippi on the river. And so I remember it was like a four hour long process where they're like getting command, like getting approval from uh, the contingency coordination center in DC, which is kind of like the hub for controlling all of that kind of stuff, the getting division approval and all that. It was just, it was a, it was a night. Luckily nobody got sent down there, but that was the closest wow. thing to a SAR launch that I think I ever saw <laughs> in my, in my career. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, we do have the assets to do it. We have the FLIR ball, whether people ever turn it on or not, I'll be honest. I was probably the least proficient person in operating the FLIR system ever. I never really got a hold of it. Um, 
I'm sure it is useful. You know, I know a lot of guys who were so proficient in it. We'd be like in the middle of a hoist and they'd be sitting there with their little controller, like watching the medic go down. And I'm like, it's nighttime. I don't know what's like, I can't see half the things around me. I need to focus. I, I just didn't want to ever, for me, it just like seemed like an additional distraction and I just wasn't proficient in it, but we do have those tools and there are people who are excellent, you know, far, far more proficient than, than myself that exist out there in those things. Um, but yeah, but yeah, that's, th- those are my medevac stories, uh, about, I think that's no, pretty much it. all of them. Yeah. Man, that, that's great. Thank you. I, if you don't mind, I, w- I want to back up because you talked about a couple of things that I, that I want to just touch on real quick sure. that I really appreciate. And, and Spencer, you can jump in here as well with some of this, but you were talking about guys that when we're out in the field and they got a ton of experience, like you said, air medals, DFCs. And for those that don't know, those are, those are higher level awards uh, that are given out for high profile missions. And you're right because one of the things that I personally went through was when I was going through my paramedic, I was looking at some of the younger guys who had been doing paramedicine for much longer than I have. And now I'm learning from them. So just cause they're younger or lower ranking, don't, I, don't put them aside quite yet. And that's for everybody out there. Somebody has got some experience. They might, they might have a little more knowledge than you. So it goes both ways. And I really like how you brought that up. Yep, absolutely. So. Something that I like to do, say in every pre-mission brief that, you know, I ever, I ever did, especially when I was on the med, when I f- was at the point where I felt like maybe I was senior enough to where people might not be comfortable speaking up because unfortunately that is a real thing. The more senior you get in your career, the less people want to say something. And, and I tell them, Hey, like the second we get in the aircraft, you can like, I'm Nick. Like, I, yeah. Like, Rank is off. Sure. If we're in a critical situation, I need you to do something. I have to put my pilot in command hat on and we're going to do it properly or do it to be safe. But at the end of the day, like everybody has a voice because we all have to work together to bring this thing back in one piece, you know? And so that, that was a mindset that I definitely had. I love that. I absolutely love that, which is actually going to segue into my next thing that I wanted to talk about, because you mentioned a lot about the CRM and working with the guys in the back. Uh, again, hoist operations. Here's what's funny about this is that, uh, and recently, this just happened to me recently is where I'm going out flying with guys and we're doing confined area landings. And fact of the matter is I know as the guy in the back that you guys up front can land the helicopter anywhere. You do not need my help. I get it, but I just appease me once in a while. I like helping you. I like calling the tail is clear. I like calling the right is clear or the left is clear. I'm just here to help you guys. So it's funny. It's funny you say that. And I, and for me personally, and I'm sure Spence probably can say the same thing. I'll be honest. The only time that I ever flew without crew chiefs pretty much in my entire career was at flight school. But as you start putting the aircraft specifically with the things that we do in the army between dust landings in confined area ops and hoist, I don't know that, well, I, I can, I can tell you there were multiple occasions uh, throughout my career where I don't know that I would be here if it wasn't for the crew chief in the back specifically, you know, we were down uh, working the border several years ago and I, we were doing a pinnacle landing on this mountain that they called flat top, which was anything, but I think it was a, I think it was a joke because it was not flat whatsoever. It was very jagged mountaintop where we were putting some border patrol guys on so they could get out and repair some sensors on the station. And, we circled around and I, I couldn't find a good area to land, but they had kind of this cliff side and I was like, not ideal, but I can put, you know, I, I was sitting right seat 
I was flying with my buddy Jerry, who was we graduated flight together, uh, flight school together. But he was a pilot in command, and I wasn't a pilot in command at the time. But we were coming in, and he was like, "Hey, I think you might be a little bit better stick. I want like, can you do this landing?" And I was like, "Okay, you know." And obviously, opposing side pinnacles are not ideal. You know, you want to be the person on the side wherever you're putting that wheel. It, it is substantially easier. And I said, "Okay." So we put our left, you know, we put our left main on this rock and in my head, like we're good to go. We're stable. The tail was off the back of this cliff and there was about four people on the, on the outside. Uh, there was about four feet of cliff between, you know, the right side of the aircraft and the drop off, you know, and this is hundreds of feet where this is a legitimate mountain. And the, we, t- I told them, I was like, leave the left door or leave the right door closed make them get out the left. There's nowhere for them to go on the right. And I guess in the process and this to your point of how good crew chiefs are, they, in my head, they're like cool packs unloading. And I had a FI in the back, which is a flight instructor. That's like your, your instructor pilot equivalent for a crew chief. And okay, I guess one of the water patrol guys opened the right door and got out before they could stop him. He, he did that, got out, realized he didn't have anywhere to go. So he was between the aircraft on about four foot of rock face before this drop off. And then the rest of them were getting out. But in the midst of this, again, like as a more junior guy at the time, like I didn't think through bringing in a little bit of collective as people are getting out of the aircraft. So because your weight's going to change. And so what ended up happening, I had a little bit too much pressure down on the rock aircraft started to tilt all at the same time. Everybody called climb, climb, climb. So I, I pull up on the collective pretty abruptly and in my head, in my head, like there was a guy jumping out of the back. I just angry birded him off the side of this mountain. Like I accelerated his launch trajectory as I pulled collective. Like I was in my head, I was terrified. You know, I had no idea what was going on, but the crew chief was like, Hey, sir, do not move the tail. And I was like, okay. He's like, I'm going to bring you right back down to where you were, but do not move the tail at all. And in my head, I'm like, okay, there's probably like a bush or something. I couldn't go forward because there was another rock face and forward, uh, forward of the aircraft, probably five feet. It looked like it was like a foot, right? But it is probably five, 10 feet. Yeah, yeah. So we come back down still at the time. I had no idea that there was a dude between the aircraft and the edge of the rock face. And he still had not been able to get, we didn't come up high enough for him to be able to move under where the aircraft was to get over the other side. And that crew chief brought me straight back down onto the rock, rested the dudes who got out. We took off because he, he said, he's like, Hey, sir, you're going to come straight up come up until I tell you to stop. Don't turn the tail. I'll call when you're clear, all that stuff. And, and we, I didn't know until after like, what had actually happened, uh, but back there because of the skill and expertise of our backseaters in knowing like, these are the things to tell them right now. And these are the things that I'm not going to tell them because he knew he's like, he knew if he, and after the fact, he's like, if I would have told you that guy was right there, it would have made you substantially more stressed than if I just told you, Hey, don't move the tail. Like keep the tail exactly where it's at because, and, and to, to his point, like if I'd have known there was a guy there, I probably wouldn't have landed back down there. I'd have found another spot and gone back in, but yeah, he put me right yeah. back down there. When we left, I was, I was literally shaking. Uh, I was terrified. Um, <laughs> the, the guys, so we, we get back to uh, Nogales, Arizona, which is like kind of where our holding point was. And the border patrol guy who was with us, you know, the AMO guy, He's like talking to, he has a laptop where he can talk to their guys. They have like these little digital things where they can all communicate kind of like blue force tracker, but probably actually works. And um, it's, it's funny, but it's true. 
And he was like, hey, they would prefer not to be picked up where you dropped him off. And I was like, great, we're all on the same page. None of us want to go back there. <laughs> they were they were terrified. We were terrified. But but to your point, you know, that plus even something as simple as some of, and Spencer can talk about it, but like how tight some of the refueling spots are overseas where they have these HESCO barriers and things like that. Like I physically just don't know. I cannot see back there. And I, yeah, to all yeah. the way to the, to the Vanderbilt pad, Vanderbilt pad isn't difficult inherently, but I, I have no concept of where my tail is at. And if I land where I'm comfortable, my tail is going to be off the back of the pad. I'm not like, I'm going to land the, the belly of the aircraft on the pad because in my head, I'm like, Oh yeah, we're good. But you like our cockpit sits forward. Our mains are on the pad, but our cockpits off the front of the pad just because it's all yeah. elevated. And so I don't know. I, I agree with you, but I, I think a lot of us on the army side, especially in the lift community, especially in the 47 community, those guys have crew coordination. Like I have never seen before, you know, Oh, it's beautiful. Everybody's it's beautiful. super skilled, but I, I, I feel as though a lot of us uh, are very reliant on our backseaters to be able to operate safely. Spencer, you might, you might have some different experiences, but at least for me, like I, when I don't have a crew chief, I feel naked. I'm like, Oh, what's going on back there? Like, Let's fly doors off so I can look back, you know. Where's my mirror? Did I get a rear view mirror? Right. right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for me, number one, I was pretty average pilot, so I'll take all the help you can get. Um, but for us, wow, I mean, for the honesty. No, hey, man, I'll always shoot you straight. Um, in my opinion, and this goes for everything, not just aviation and stuff, but in particular in career fields like aviation where, you know, mistakes can result in people's, lives and whatnot like <clears throat> there's no place for arrogance and ego and that kind of stuff and i got it everybody in those types of situations have those egos you know pilots special operations people like it takes a certain type of person like be a part of that community but knowing when to turn that shit off and recognizing that you can learn something from anybody on any given day because when you get to the point to where you don't think that and you think you know everything that's when you're really fucking dangerous and that's when it's time to hang it up in my opinion uh i don't care if you have you know if you're fresh out of flight school or whatever it is, or like you're brand new to some company out of fucking college, like everybody has something to contribute. Um, and you should always take people's word of face value, man. I mean, you have, you never know when they might end up saving your life in a situation like this, like next talking about. So that's just my own personal opinion, man. Like the, the arrogant stuff is a, is a no go. So we like getting, I like getting a little direction from the guys in the back, you know, when I'm drifting all over the fucking place, like, thanks. I know I'm fucked up, but I appreciate you acknowledging it for the entire crew as well. So I literally had a crew chief. I had a crew chief who I was sitting here doing slings and luckily, luckily, even though I've had similar things with myself before, I wasn't the one on the controls. He was messing with my PI who kept trying to come in and we were practicing like rapidly approaching sling load blocks and training with a ground force and he would come in and he started just going, eh, swing and a miss. And every single time he was like swing and a miss. Cause he just, you know, he's either undershooting or overshooting and he was trying to help him, you know, pinpoint precision. But then, you know, the learning experience came out and he helped, you know, start calling them down in seconds and walking them onto this as we're approaching. But you know, those guys are so critical to, to what we do in the army. And I'm sure in the coast guard, you know, we had uh, captain Alec Balasari, on the uh, on the podcast, I don't know if you know who who uh, Captain Baldessari is. Not off the top of my head, no. And, you know he uh, he was a Coast Guard pilot. I believe he's he is retired now, and um, you know he he had a I believe he has a Distinguished Flying Cross. Um, 
he was talking about his mission off the coast of, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Seattle. I think it was Washington. And, okay. you know, he was talking about the ocean swells and things like that. And it was completely just hearing the conditions at which the Coast Guard guys launched in and performed this, you know, this hoist operation. It was something that reminded me of like the movie, the guardian. And I even made that comment. I was like, dude, this is like the story from the guardian. And, um, he was like, yeah, he's like, it is very similar. And in my head, I'm like, that's, that's what they based the movie off of. They read this guy's award and they said, we're going to make a movie out of it. But, um, but, but you know, it's, it's just so different. You know, I, I mentioned earlier 501, but I would guarantee that if a coast guard, if a coast guard pilot listened to this, they'd be like 501. That's great. Like, let's go. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not a big, what do you mean 500? You can't see anything. What do you need to see? What do you need to see beyond a mile for? That's not a big deal. But then add, add that onto, you know, 50 foot waves out in the ocean, trying to get somebody off a boat. I just, I physically can't imagine flying in that because it's not a training profile. It's not a mission profile that we have ever right. trained in the army. And so, yeah. you know, it's a big yeah. deal for us just to be able to adequately perform overwater operations at night. And that's hard enough for most of us because unless you're in the special operations community, it's just not something that we do all of the time, unless you're in Hawaii or maybe like Korea or somewhere where they do that all the time. Um, And so that's a huge learning experience. I can't imagine, you know, just this, the proficiency and, and, and what you guys do. And, and, you know, from, from an army pilot to, to the rest of the coast guard guys out there, because I know a lot of them that are, you know, actively participate in battalion stuff you know, kudos to you guys. You guys do, you guys might think what we do is cool, but I can promise you if you tell two to three mission stories, like you're going to have some army pilots jaws on the floor because it's just wild compared to what we know and do on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I, and I agree with both because right now I, between your good stories right now, I'm like, what the, are you freaking kidding me? And, and both of you are like, ah, oh, it was so big deal. It was like this minor thing. And I'm like, I'm, I'm losing my mind right now. This is freaking badass. Just so you know, all right? Oh, man. All right, so I want to bring uh, two more things that, that you had mentioned earlier. One of them was um, you were talking about saving time. Slow and smooth, it's smooth as fast. And I love that statement. I, I really do. And one of the things that I learned going through my medic program, I actually was even back in EMT style uh, or EMT school was, you can drive lights and sirens and 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 maybe kick off 30 seconds of time and what's what, what's the gain out of it so slow everything down it'll it'll go fast and it'll go fine and i really like that and the other part about that is i know we're going to get our own and again you guys a little bit different um mission profile but their emergency is not your emergency. And it's unfortunate to say that, but it's a reality because you're putting an entire crew at risk going out in that half mile, one mile visibility, 500 feet for some guy that's injured. Well, uh, can he wait? Can he wait a look? Can we do something else? Is there another option? So I I like that conversation as well. And, And what's cool about it is the fact that you're bringing it up right now is the fact that everybody and around the world that I've talked to is thinking the exact same thing, which is a great thing to hear in this community. So I appreciate that one. Absolutely. To that point too, and something that probably Spencer saw is, you know, in the med world, they talk about, you know, the golden hour, but 
in reality, as we look into the future fight specific to army, obviously coast, you know, coast guard does fight people. People can understand, people need to understand that the coast guard absolutely does have a combat mission overseas and domestically, like whether they want to know that or not. Yeah. But you know, when they look to the future fight, like that golden hour isn't an hour. And then that's where this rushing mindset came from is like, Hey, we got to go. We have an out this golden hour window to get them from point A to point B. Right. So they live. But the reality is that as we look at some of the future stuff and these really long range movements to be able to get these people in, in these near peer type of environments, can they be FL, can they be FL or, you know, field ambulance back to a, a, a point where they can be sustained what, what are, yeah. what are all of the options? Because I might not be able to even get there in time. And those conversations kind of have to happen when that mission comes down, because you don't know what supplies they have at the time. You don't know what the situation on the battlefield is going to be at that time. Like all of those factors come into play and, and they can change from hour to hour. And so it's, it's just a totally different situation. So to your point, it's like right. slow is smooth, smooth is fast if we're slow to ask the right questions when they need to be asked and think through, because I know a lot of times as pilots, we do become robots. We're creatures of habit and, you know, like APU on blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, we go through everything like very robotically and do these things. But a lot of times, like if we take in the same ideas and thought process that we do in the mission planning phase way before that mission even starts and then apply them to the, you know, the pre-launch phase, I think that we'll be, you know, quite a bit, better in terms of our, our long-term success. Totally, totally agree. Um, last one, the last point that I had out of everything that we talked about earlier, you were mentioning that your guys track the times uh, of all your medevacs. And, and one of the things I really like about that, and we do as well, uh, even on the civilian side right now, uh, a lot of it comes back to that self-evaluation and a great debrief points. What can we do better? And again, it's across all fields around the world. It's everybody's trying to come back to say, what can we do better? And I love that. It's, it's something that I embrace all the time and I appreciate you bringing it here too. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, man, I, I have loved all of these stories, everything, your debrief stuff, your, your training, your, the entire mission profile that you guys fly is absolutely incredible. Uh, please don't ever take it away and say it was, oh, it's nonchalant. It's freaking badass. And, and I appreciate you sharing it with me. So I've had you guys on here for a long time as well. So if there's anything else you guys want to shout out at, now's the opportunity. Other than that, we can close it out. Yeah, thanks, Quinn. It's been a, a real blessing to be on here and, and share some some stories. Um, I, it's it's fun telling war stories. It'll never get old. I assume the older we get, the more fun and the more grandiose they'll become too. Um, but at the date of this recording, and I don't know what's this is going to come out, but it's the 14th of November. Um, on the 10th of November over the weekend, or that might have been that Friday, a uh, Charlie Company first 160th MH60 went down um, over the water and they lost five souls. Um, we talked a little bit about Brotine at the beginning of this episode, but uh, some of the same guys involved also created a nonprofit called the Brotion Blue Skies Foundation. And our mission is to provide post mishap support to those Army Aviation Gold Star families. So we are actively uh, fundraising and initiating casualty support for those five families. So if you would like to partake in um, fundraising or just to learn more or whatever, please feel free to check us out um, the Brotion Blue Skies Foundation.org or on social media at 
blue underscore skies underscore foundation on Instagram. Uh, you can also just go to Brotalian and it'll be advertised all over that place too about the nonprofit's mission set and how you can support. Um, but thank you so much, Jason, for giving us an opportunity to, uh, to highlight that. It's the um, heart and soul of everything that we do. Honored to be in a position to leverage our resources and our community on one side for the better part of the community on the other. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I'm sorry for the loss of your, our, our fellow brothers, man. That's tough. So I love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for doing that for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys on. I've, I've loved this so much. It's, it's been awesome. So hopefully uh, this upcoming year, HAI, Hilly Expo, Anaheim, maybe, yet again, we hang out. Maybe yeah. get back a beer maybe. there. It'd be fun. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Okay. That's okay. going to that's right. gonna be up to Spencer. We'll, we'll make it happen. Is it oh, in, right. it's in Anaheim? It is. Okay. It is. I have a lot of family out in California. I'm sure we can swing something. We can make it happen. That's yeah. all I heard. Isn't that where you the mighty... Know. I heard it. That's where the mighty ducks are from, right? Damn right, dude. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I'm in. Done. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'll plan on seeing you guys there then. All right. Likewise, we'll go back man. And take a beer back. Maybe Absolutely. share some more stories. Yes. Awesome. Well, with that, I will catch you guys later. And that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. So, now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode, Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Hey, rule number 10. Connections should always be dressed and double-checked. Alright, so what does this actually mean? Well, anytime you guys go out and you're getting ready, you put on your gear and you make sure it looks tidy and neat. All your ropes are secured, all your carabiners are secured, all your harnesses are secured properly. It's a head-to-toe check of all your gear and equipment to make sure that you are going to be safe when you're going out on your rescue operation. Now for the double check. Double checking connections is a simple yet effective practice that can save time, prevent problems, and maintain integrity and safety in your various systems. It's a habit worth cultivating to ensure a smooth operation and reliability of your rescue operation. So the next time you get called out, remember rule number 10. Keep your connections dressed and double-checked.